Hey, it's Bill Simmons from The Ringer, and this is a podcast called The Rewatchables. We have been doing it really since 2017. It started with how much we love the movie Heat. We decided to structure a whole podcast with categories, most rewatchable scene, who won the movie, Apex Mountain, what age the best. But here's the thing. If you want the full archive, you can hear them only on Spotify for free, by the way. So make sure to follow The Rewatchables on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, listening to nothing but Bruce Hornsby's scenes from the South Side. It's Andy Greenwald! What a big show. We're both so excited what to up, podcast Jeff? today. Oh, Andy, it's great to see your beautiful, positive, optimistic yeah. face as we embark on a second season of The Bear today. Yes. We're going to do the first three episodes. There's also recaps happening in the Prestige TV podcast. You can listen to those. We're also going to talk about the first episode of Secret Invasion, Marvel's mm. Secret Invasion. And got a little news at the top, but I just want to say, man, nobody does it like you. <laughs> It's the Andy Greenwald piece. That's what people don't talk about enough. Yes, thank you. The mental toughness that you bring to a team. It's that and my expiring contract <laughs> that make me really valuable this time of year. I feel like you're alluding to the fact that I played a little iso ball at the end of this podcast. Yes, that's and right. I did an interview with one of my favorite filmmakers, the great Nicole Hall of Center, who has a new movie out with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. It's called You Hurt My Feelings. It's in theaters now. I love this movie. It is my Spider-Verse. Yeah. In addition to Spider-Verse being my Spider-Verse. Um, Movies are good, man. I saw Past Lives last night. Like, they're they're cranking them out right now. There's, Past Lives was deeply moving. Yeah, and like, you go to... The, here's the thing about movies, Chris. Let me explain them to you a little bit. I, I don't know if you watch them ever or talk about them on podcasts, but what a great experience. <laughs> you go out, you sit in a room with strangers, maybe some friends. Yeah. And you it moves you, you know? In a, heartbreak feels good in places like that. <laughs> That's right. To coin a phrase. But... I dined to see past lives. You hurt my feelings. It was such a delightful experience. It is, it is emotional. It's humanist. It is funny as fuck. It's a great movie, and I was glad to talk to Nicole about it. Do you think the fact that Gail Simmons, mm-hmm. as far as I know, did not regram our podcast means that she was really appalled by our idol discussion? No, I think I thought about this. So, um, I think the main issue was certainly on Instagram when you post from Spotify, our podcast just said. The Idol, episode three. And then it was like, whatever else we talked about. And then it was like, space bar, space bar, space bar. Gail right. Simmons is here. So there was nothing in the visual content. We should have had Gail Simmons on the Idol. Right. And then that would have got... Food Idol, Gail Simmons. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, I, I, Gail uh, uh, DM'd 
a nice message. That's really nice. Um, to me that alone. That must have gone to my spam. Yeah, yeah no, no. I, I get it. But uh, she was aware, and I was happy that we got to talk to her. You want to do some news at the top? I do. Or you had some house cleaning. Oh, just house cleaning that um, I feel like most people who listen to this podcast in 2023 are doing so because of the time we reviewed NBC's short-lived limited series, The Slap. Yeah. Like they're that's they're what hanging on to in. a dream there. But if anybody was following your boys... Kind of like the scrolls dream of a new planet, right? <laughs> I'm so excited to talk about that <laughs> show with you. I just wanted to give a shout out for people Seriously, from the old... Seriously, how hard is it to find a planet? <laughs> There's so many. Yeah. And they're all just purple and green. What's so great about this one? Ugh. Um... Like 20 years deep, if anyone's been following us, knows that that actually 20 years ago, I wrote a book about emo music called uh, Nothing Feels Good. And now, it's just this month, June 2023, a really talented um, music writer named Chris Payne wrote a book that um, I think is really overdue. It's an oral history of the emo scene, but also much after the time that I was able to cover. So it focuses on the sort of mainstream explosion in bands like My Chemical Romance and Fall Out Boy. After you turned your back Paramore. on it because it got too big, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Couldn't stretch the scene around the whole country. <laughs> Just went straight back into basement shows at the church. Um, this is a really cool oral history. It's called Where Are Your Boys Tonight? It's out this month. Thrilled to be a part of it. I think people will really enjoy it if you like that kind of music or if you're just interested in a, a, a very bizarre moment of American culture when the stuff went mainstream. Also, um, Chris, I I feel really excited about... You, you know how... I feel like people still talk about how in our buddy Chuck Klosterman's book, Killing Yourself to Live, you are described as like a crack pool player. Yeah. And like, that's a thing that people... That's probably first line of your obituary, isn't it? I hope so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's maybe the whole obituary. I haven't done anything since, so let's let's go with that. I'm really happy now that there are two hardcover books that breathlessly document the night I missed seeing Madonna at Miss Shapes. Is that in this other emo book too? It's in, yeah, it's in um, Meet Me in the Bathroom. Uh-huh. And it's also in this book. <laughs> because I was, I went, and then I, it was too early, and then I went, I hung out with Mikey away from My Chemical Romance at another bar, and then I came back, and I'd missed Madonna. You would, like, like, there was just, like... This is, like, the Zelig like, moment, and now there are two hardcover books documenting it. Because you told this story twice. That's a, that's sort of a negative way to interpret what <laughs> no, I'm trying just, to say. No, I that's, was just asking if you told this story in the same, in each book. I mean, yes. Okay. Is the answer yes? The answer is yes. I'm excited to check this book out. There's nothing I like more than reading your quotes. Uh, Andy... <laughs> Oh, you know what? Let me plug Tyler's book really quick. Yeah, do it. Tyler Parker, our buddy, a, a ringer staffer, and one of the most creative and talented guys I've ever had the pleasure of working with. He has his first novel is out. It's called A Little Blood and Dancing. Uh, you can find it um, at your favorite bookstores. If they, if they don't have it, ask for it. You can also use online retailers if that is your jam. And uh, I, I just made my way through it. It is so good. It reminds me a lot of the short story writer Barry Hanna. Wow. Um, comic Southern Gothic yeah. lord of, of short fiction. But this is a great novel. I think if you like Elmore Leonard, if you like Larry McMurtry, if you like Tyler's work on The Ringer, you will really love this book. So please check it out. A Little Blood and Dancing by Tyler Parker. Are and, there any anecdotes about club nights in your yeah, city? Yeah, there's a whole section of the night Andy missed Madonna at Miss Shapes, mm -hmm. you know, just to get a third third time's a charm. I think that's best. I feel like there's, it, it's like, it's like that film, The Last Duel that Nicole Hall of Center was one of the writers of. <laughs> That's right, she was. She also does the a lot of uh, episodes of Sex in the City, if I remember correctly. She does a lot of TV directing, Sex My and City. My wife and I were just fired, we fired Parks up and, and just like that S2. Did you? Yeah. Wow. yeah. We'll talk about that on a future podcast. That's kind of a screener brag. You know what else Nicole says? No, it's out. 
It's out? It's out today. Oh, well, I bet. I'd record first, then I open up Max to see what's <laughs> new. Um, Nicole also, uh, you know what went through her typewriter? The film Black Widow. Oh, yeah. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. I was like, did you write the action scenes? And she said, no. <laughs> Is that one word answer? Uh, speaking of the Warner Brothers Discovery Company. Okay. Uh, I have a little bit of a news item for you. Thank you. You know, uh, it's been quite quite a week in uh, the media, so I can understand if people may have missed this. Um, Warner Brothers is looking to, and this is per deadline, uh, is looking to license some HBO shows to Netflix. And according to the report, uh, they're just right now talking about licensing Insecure, but possibly other shows to the streamer. And uh, this is obviously part of a larger strategy to develop more revenue streams for pre-existing library content that they have. They've taken a bunch of things off of the service to move to uh, paid or fast channels. Mm-hmm. So, so basically ad-supported streaming channels. And you predicted something like this was going to happen mm-hmm. um, where HBO or, or any of the Warner Brothers sort of channels, but specifically HBO might be looking to, you know, you might see this stuff on other, other uh, streaming services. I was wondering what your reaction was to this. Well, not since that night in Manhattan in 2005 when I missed Madonna. I don't miss things anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that was really an inflection point. That's so right. So I, I don't miss, like, goings-on in the industry. I think that, um, broadly, the companies in question are trying to find a way to make television profitable again. Um, and also, broadly, that the answer to that seems to be... Uh, Selling stuff to one another. <laughs> putting some toothpaste back in the tube. Yeah. Um, and winding things back. So that's why, you know, we're saying that we're likely to head back to some kind of bundle. But in, in terms of, you know, there's going to there's gonna be, we're going to lose some of these services along the way, RIP. Um, but also, they may be bundling in different ways, and much like with the way the cable bundle used to function. But one of the big ones is that these companies have extremely valuable assets that for reasons that seem to make sense at the time, they pulled back or bought back or bought for themselves to keep within their own corporate silos. Mm-hmm. And this is, for example, like one of the most reliable money makers for Warner Brothers was Friends. Um, so Netflix fr- Netflix was paying an enormous amount of money to yeah. stream Friends for a while. But in the build-up to launching their own service, which was then HBO Max, they pulled it back and bought it back for themselves at a great price. Similarly, The Office was doing gangbusters um, for Universal on Netflix, and then they bought it back for Peacock. It simply doesn't make sense. Um, to keep everything within the silo. So um, I'm sure that there are those, in this. in the article you're talking about, it quoted, or didn't quote, it referenced unnamed or off-the-record HBO people who were against this, basically feeling like one of the values of HBO f- within itself and for the larger company is that it is the jewel box with the best jewels. Yes. You can't get the jewels anywhere else. But yes. six years ago, or longer, almost ten, almost 10 years ago, a bunch of HBO shows were on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember the wire was. I there, think that was Sopranos. before Prime Video was a thing, right? Correct. So this is the first time in this we are competitors era that this has gone on. But honestly, and they've and they've licensed shows to you know terrestrial cable networks or at least like basic cable networks to be to as reruns like The Wire and I think The well, Sopranos have been. Sex in the City was edited and syndicated for oh, yeah? a brief time. Yeah. Um, so e. there's a history of this, and frankly, it just makes sense that they're trying to make money. I this. This doesn't. This isn't like a pearl clutching moment. For yeah, me. it's not. I don't know that I'm entirely against it, or I'm not against it. It seems like it seems like a new audience might get to check out a really good show. Yeah, Insecure is really good, and maybe had ceilinged out in its discoverability on Max. 
yeah. and the three different iterations of this this service. I think you could look at it as an indictment of, and I'm going to say it. Say it. Say it. The UX. Wow. Yeah. What at 180 you've done? No, I don't know. UX? I think you could look at it though. I mean, like, what are we talking about? Like the discoverability, the ability mm-hmm. to find shows on this service, and the ability for them to showcase it and merchandise it and be, have it be that kind of like, hey, it's 10.30 p.m. Don't you want to watch another episode of Insecure? You know, like that kind of thing that I feel like Netflix always has the the tile that you want or the tile that you're curious about right in front of you and that things just kind of bleed into one another. It is the thing that makes that service so easy to use. And I don't know whether it's a matter of there's just like way too much opposing material on Macs, but there certainly is on Netflix. I just think it's... Honestly, it's probably good for Insecure. It's it's a show yes. that I think was was wonderful, and I, I hope more people get to see it. Also, one of the downsides of the entertainment industry becoming a, a tech industry is the adoption of the idea that everything needs to be new and next, and we move and we just move forward no matter what. And what I mean by that is, there are millions of people within this country who have not really embraced streaming who don't check streaming for shows yeah. and who are not being serviced with the high-quality programming that you and I like to discuss on this podcast. And we're starting to see a grudging admission of that. Last week, we talked about how um, FX is going to start showing Reservation Dogs on the cable channel FX right. as opposed to the bizarre carve-out FX on Hulu where it's existed up to this point. Taylor Sheridan, who's been in the news this week, his Yellowstone prequels... Only good things, though, right? Only good things. His Yellowstone prequels were really, in many ways, ordered to prop up um, Paramount Plus, Paramount Plus yeah. because of that great... And prop up his ranch. Well, Did yes. you read that? Part we of should the, mention, the... I'd love to talk about that, actually. <laughs> but, but because of that great faux pas where Paramount licensed Yellowstone, the mothership reruns, yeah. to Peacock. So what that meant was 1883 was only available on Paramount Plus. I think last week or the week before, they started showing it on Paramount Network yes. for Yellowstone... Yellowstone airs and it did gangbusters fucking numbers. Yes. It did Yellowstone numbers. It did we haven't seen this this on cable in a decade numbers. Yes. People want to watch shows on TV guys. Like this is still he said from the picket lines. No dude, a television I, look, business. I, I'm I'm just a simple guy, but sometimes it's a lot easier to flick through the movie channels on cable and have them tell me You've missed the first 10, 15 minutes of the Peter Weller sci-fi horror movie Leviathan. Yeah. But we, you know, it's right here if you want to start watching it. And I'm like, you know what I do? Yeah. I do. I don't need to watch the first 15 minutes. It's nice to be told what to watch sometimes. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's not a hardship. It's not a hardship. We've spent a lot of the, the do last... Talk, do you want to talk about the Taylor Sheridan thing or do you want to punt that? Well, no, because I, I, it's not that I don't want to talk about it because I'm in the pocket of big four sixes. I just don't have the article like at my fingertips. Right. Essentially, he gave a... Variety or Hollywood Reporter? It's Hollywood Reporter. Har- with James Hibbert. And he gave a very long, in-depth interview about... <laughs> and he was like, I'm going to piss off these PR people, which you love. Uh, and it was about everything. It was about mm-hmm. the state of Yellowstone, whether Kevin Costner is going to be returning, uh, kind of got into that. All the shows that he is overseeing and he has apparently taken the reins back from of, you know, like, and his relationship to the idea of collaborative writing mm-hmm. um and that he took the overall deal from paramount so that he could buy the legendary four sixes ranch for 300 million dollars yes, but now is in a almost i wouldn't say unsustainable but like in a very precarious place where he is writing and overseeing upwards of five television shows. right but luckily for him somehow he's writing shows that are set on horse ranches and he's Look. he has one that he can rent to himself <laughs> it's nice work if you can get exactly it. um 
I think I'm on the record pretty surely about how I feel about Taylor Sheridan's work, which is, yeah. I am a fan. Yes. Uh, I did not finish Kingstown season two, but for the most part, uh, I'm almost weirdly like something of a completist. So, Well, my favorite detail in the piece was that Mayor of Kingstown was his first script. Yeah. And when people wanted to buy it but take it away from him, he said, no, sir. And put it in a desk. I am the mayor of Kingstown and saved it for yes. himself. There's a lot of stuff in this article about how great uh, he is. How, how fast Whether he is. or not he like wants to or should be sharing duties. Um, yeah. And it's a fascinating piece. People, people should check it out. Hollywood Reporter Taylor Sheridan. It'll come up in Google. Trust me. Um, anyway, let's talk about... So like last couple weeks, obviously, yeah. a little bit of a turn for the watch. Oh, yeah. he, a, a heel turn. Yeah, perhaps. I think... Well, I mean, we've just been... It's been a little bit of a cold war. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I feel something about to thaw out here. Okay. Because the bear's back. And uh, it's... I've seen this... At, in, I, I found myself watching this second season. So how we're going to break this down is I think we're going to do the first three episodes today. So we're going to talk about the first three with spoilers. Yes, but we're yeah. going to stop at three. And I saw four. The whole season is up now. So, you know, obviously people, I think a lot of people are going to watch it over the weekend. But we're just going to try and do this over three episodes of the podcast. Okay. So three, three, and four. And, uh, you know, <laughs> when this show started, I had to kind of like remind myself a little bit that this was a TV show. Do you know what I mean? Like the the sort of level of emotion that you kind of feel seeing these people in action again, I think is almost like weirded me out a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Like You, you felt a little tender. Well, because I think that this is a very old school sensation that we have been, mm. we've had kicked out of us because so much of the show, so many of the shows that we watch are limited. So many of the shows are either way too saccharine or way too fucking dark. So you're not entirely... It's not like I get like the hairs on the back of my neck stand up when Jason Bateman would walk across the Ozarks <laughs> or something like that. I'd be like, oh yeah, this guy's about to triple cross someone and someone's going to get their head blown off. Like, you know, and I think that the some of the cartoonier aspects of, say, Ted Lasso in the last two seasons probably turned me off to like the like be curious parts of it. Um, not so with the bear. Uh, as the as the opening piano keys, unbelievable from Bruce Hornsby. The show goes on, kick in after Marcus is visiting his mother in the hospital, and we get all the overhead shots of Chicago, and the lingering uh, shot of Anthony Bourdain's signed photograph in the old the the beef restaurant. Uh, it just felt like kind of returning. I I dare say home, but like, Mm -hmm. it was a very like, oh man, this is why people have parasocial relationships with television shows. Yeah, these motherfuckers are shameless to shout out another Chicago set television show starring Jeremy Allen White. And I love it with the music. Like, we've talked about this time and time again, that they do not shy away from the ones that are just going to reach into your heart and rip it out of your body. And that's like algorithmically designed to fuck you up. This is my favorite show. Brings me nothing but joy to confirm what probably everybody already knows, that there is nothing, at least in the first third of the season, to suggest that it's not going to continue being my favorite show. The degree of difficulty of what they've clearly done, I mean, I feel confident saying they've done, even though I'm I'm restraining myself from binging the entire season. I don't think you can overstate it, because the first season of this show, by all accounts, not just in the watching, but in the making, is kind of a miracle. For people who, who don't remember or who, who don't pay attention or care about this stuff, like this was um, a 
feature script mm-hmm. that Christopher Storer had written and been developing for a long time. It was changed into a television show, and FX greenlit it with what I believe to be a passionate shrug emoji. Now, they got to make the show. I'm not trying to take shots at FX. They believed in the show and they made it. But they also were like, okay, here's your budget. Go make this show in Chicago in February, and we're going to put out the entire thing in four months. Yeah. Not dissimilar to the stakes of season two, which is we're going to open a restaurant in a similar amount of time. I I find that the the, the parallels between making a TV show mm-hmm. and making anything and doing this restaurant are very clear. Very clear. Yeah. And, and it's working. You know, uh, everyone... Everybody, no matter what they say, really only writes what they know. And when it's not a one-to-one, but it's close enough, you can feel the truth in it. Even if Christopher Storer has never opened a restaurant in this many weeks, or Joanna Callow, his co-showrunner. So to pull that off and to make a show that literally came out of nowhere and delighted everyone who came in contact with it, and then to be told, do it again. (laughs) Which actually also is cooking, by the way. Yeah. What a good dish you made. Now make it 20 times tonight. It's remarkable. And not only is it remarkable that they pulled it off, but that they chose to begin this season this way because this is one of the quietest returns that I can remember. In terms of the first episode? In terms of the first five minutes of episode 201. You know, it's Bruce Hornsby. It's Chicago. It's Marcus in a situation we don't know, Mm -hmm. right? We're not, we didn't go home with him, I don't think. Uh, we we did no, see him eating with Sydney. We, we certainly did. I don't think we saw Marcus came comes to Sydney's house once, but I don't right. think that I don't think that we ever saw him. Yeah, and at home and it, and it's just indicating a lot of things to me. It's indicating all of the feelings we've had for the show are going to be rewarded with a genuinely empathetic treatment of character and depth and broadening the world. Um, it's also got a quiet confidence that we know that probably you're still the hairs on your arm are still either singed from the stove or standing up from the bravura penultimate episode that was like, well, you know, it was a wonder, the intensity of the kitchen. A lot of the reviews talk about how intense this show is. It doesn't always need to be. Yeah. It doesn't always need to be. And I love that. I don't know that the visual style that they introduced in the early first season was sustainable. And that peaks with the the Mm -hmm. wonder episode. You know, I don't know how many times you can go back to that well. And there are several episodes of the first season that are almost conventional, you Mm -hmm. know. uh, Yes. Richie and Carm go the to the party suburbs and, mm-hmm. and go to the birthday party. They're, they're almost like your usual situational comedy episodes, honestly, like where it's just like, here's like a challenge for these two. Mm-hmm. Let's have some comedy come out of it. I find that the chaos in this episode or in this season to be much more auditory. So you're hearing the sounds of the construction going on and yes. banging pots, ticking clocks. The pressure and the uh, intensity of the restaurant opening seems to be much more uh, audio rather than visual. Mm. I think the visual style has like calmed down significantly. And I think that that's reflected in the interior lives of a lot of the characters. I mean, the first season was like, can he save this and save himself, right? This season is about how fucking hard it is to love and trust people. Mm -hmm. And also how hard it is to make something and how hard it is to find time for yourself outside of making something. And I think that's really interesting television. Yeah. It, it really is. I mean, I always think about Friday Night Lights with this show because I think that was the last show that I had like this kind of like, hey man, don't let anything happen to six kind of stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in, in some ways it inhibits you while you're watching it because you're like, I don't want anything bad to happen to these people. But something bad happening is usually what drama is. But also, there is 
a richness of life in every frame of this show that allows it to do something pretty rare. I agree with you completely. I want to protect these people and I want them all to succeed and I want Ibrahim to become a great line cook and to go through this school. Yeah. And I want, ev- I want everything for everyone. But I also understand the framing of the show so clearly and cleanly that I know that guaranteed success is not in the cards for everyone at everything that they do. I also know because of the very careful framing that they're not going to get eaten by dragons. Sure. That the worst thing that's going to happen, in many ways, the worst things have already happened to many of them, you know, with tragedy in their own lives or the the inciting incident for the entire show or just Carmi's general walking around demeanor, like is not a calm place to be. I'm so happy to have a show like this that can that has room to hold on to the love between these people and the humor between these people and the idiosyncrasies of these people, but also the hardship that is also part of their lives. You know, it's not an aberration. I don't think episode six is going to be a fire and then everything's ruined. Sure. You know, it, it is a, it's a simmer because that's kind of what life experience is. This is kind of a, a, a low grade simmer of potential bad news. Let's go through a couple of moments in each episode. Yeah. Shall we? Um, the first one, is a, a total handshake episode, you know, like, and I, I wanted to ask you specifically about the moment where we get Oliver Platt uh, oh, coming in and, and essentially unwinds the, so you guys found all this money in mm-hmm. cans mm-hmm. and, and Mikey knew you were going to find it. And, and what was that? I think that there, if there was any criticism of the first season, it was like, what the fuck is up with this money? And mm-hmm. like, now what? And they solve it by saying like it's going to cost basically a million dollars to to open this place and there's still not you know there's still a lot more to do yep and then they basically get themselves a partner with uh with Oliver Platt's character and Uncle Lee right yeah who we've yet to meet what did you think of the uh would you call it narrative surgery to kind of like make it so that like the last part of the first season is now kind of like not swept under the rug. It's not swept under the rug. It's it's amplified. So now it is just it's collected and then placed forward. Yeah. You know, in that the threat of losing everything by not having enough money is still very present. It's in many ways the same money, but now it's been doubled down upon, and it's all Carmi's doing. He's right. like, I will give you will get all of this if I if we don't pull this off. The, the The main thing for me is this is a fantastically written scene with the alarm going off. And Richie yelling from upstairs. And them giving their very, like, you know, like, I'm reading off of cue cards. They're very earnest pitch. Shark Tank yeah. pitch. Oliver Platt, speaking of pitch, pitch perfect. Mm-hmm. He is in this. He's having so much fun, and he's totally in it. What is going and on? <laughs> the, we need to take a moment to talk about that with Succession gone, is this the best cast show on television? I don't mean the best cast, although you could make that case too. I just mean everyone who is added or brought in feels like they belong there. And mm-hmm. no one is showboating. No one, sta- no one makes you do a double take. They all fit into this world, which feels so deeply lived in. So no, I, I mean, I, I love that they were economical about it. I mean, again, these are short episodes. So yeah. it's like, okay, so what's the business going to be? And what do we have to clean up? And I don't just mean the mold and the mold problem. What do we have to clean up to pitch it forward? It's, I just thought it was clean. I loved it. One of the, not consequences, but one of the things that has happened in the second season is that I think that more people are getting more screen time than maybe they had in the first season. And mm, in the first few episodes, the only person who kind of like, I don't know if suffers or like, like, uh, Evan Moss Bacharach doesn't have as much like, like spotlight scenes. I don't know. 
but he does say that the Wi-Fi password or the the alarm password <laughs> is GoFastBoatsMojito, one word, which if you don't know is uh, essentially the uh, the <laughs> Seven Stations of the Cross for me from Miami Vice, the Michael Mann film. Yep. Uh, I can't believe it. I can't believe I live in a world where that happened. It's so funny. But also his whole thing. I mean, again, the really the first Richie scene of the season might be the most vulnerable and emotional we get for the entire season. We yeah. don't know. Yeah. His I don't have a purpose thing. Yeah. I don't have a purpose. And Carmen's like, I don't have time for this. I have time for this. Um, that is a confident hand and an incredible performer. I mean, that it he's Richie's deep so like good. letterbox life, like where he's like <laughs> he's like <laughs> talking about Blade Runner. <laughs> Listen, there if you want to if you want to do like deep Richie cuts, like I don't know the last time I felt so seen uh, in media as I did the moment when he says to his daughter, you know, daddy loves you and I love taking care of you. And there's a pause and he says, and and daddy loves Taylor Swift too. He just needed to break. <laughs> that is, that's a deep, deep dad cut that I really, really love. Any other first first episode things? Like I, I basically, I, I put a bookmark on Uncle Lee. Yeah. Uh, by the time people listen to this podcast, they may already be like, well, I know who Uncle Lee is. I have a guess. But, you know, it's, it, it, I thought they did a nice job setting up the stakes. And I think that the fact that this is a show without, at least so far, not like the adversary is life. It's not like there's yeah. a big bad. You know what I mean? The adversary is like, how hard is it to trust somebody? Especially when you get business involved. You yeah. Know? And how hard is it to do anything? How expensive everything is? I thought there were other, a few like just smart chess piece rearranging, like bringing Abby Elliott as Sugar back, like more closely in. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a good addition and giving her a real purpose and reason for being there and connection to these characters was important. I think, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, let me just say, I, I on this podcast a week or two ago, I was like, how dare FX put this entire season up? And then I, I sat down to watch maybe one and then I looked up and three were gone and I almost hit play on four yeah. because I love it so much. Yeah. So I understand why they did that. Is episode one... When, I think they could have put up the first three and then taken a, taken a week and put up three more. I, I Not as, only because that's how we're going to do it, but because I agree. I watched four and I was like, good, that's a chapter break. Right. Is between three and like four is a new chapter. Is it the first episode when Sydney runs out to talk to Tina? Mm-hmm. That was so that was that was some Coach Taylor like shit right I thought, there. I cried. Yeah. The show makes me cry. <laughs> that moment was so beautiful. Liza Colonzias as, as Tina is such a great great performer you know, she's a she's an actor and playwright and she's like from like the the new york city theater world yeah. and worked with philip seymour hoffman and and you cast someone like that who who you it's an incredible thing with casting right like first season she's there it's a lefty out of the bullpen and, and gets like three outs and then it's just like i got you but also the lefty has been in the league yes you just didn't notice yes. the lefty i'm not saying you many people i'm sure are familiar with her work but your eyes move past and you're looking at the stars and you're paying attention to something else and it's all for this moment and you realize what you've what you the the, the sort of character equity you've invested without realizing it and that this means so much to her and you deeply understand why and it's not even scripted i mean it's scripted but there are no words in that moment you know yeah. she hugs her Friday Night Lights is a good comp because for me, like that's that's a moment why what we're chasing. That's why narrative serialized television storytelling <laughs> fucking matters. Yeah. Honestly, I loved it. Um, episode two, 
mold is a buzzword. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone through the me- couple media cycles. Um, yeah, problems get worse with the new uh, this iteration of the restaurant, the the bear part two. And here's my big uh, here's my here's my hot take. Yeah. Do they have? I really don't believe this, but I just want for the sake of conversation. Does the bear of the show? Yeah. Have a that thing you do problem with the menu. Uh, so my point, this like, is, this is a good question because you look, we watch a lot of food television. People eat a lot. Like you start talking about what these meals are. In the first season, it was like Carmi and these people are elevating mm-hmm. these traditional Chicago sandwiches and like you know comfort food fare. And then in this season, it's like Sydney and Carm going for a star doing their chaos menu. And when they start throwing around like words like radicchio and cherry vinegar, mm-hmm. and every time they taste something, they're like, Ugh. but like, you know, you're going through the process. You're going through the process. What are they like? Ugh. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's uh-huh. my cherry vinegar face. That's good. But if you start laying out the menu, yeah. maybe there's three people in the studio. Maybe two of us are like, yeah, it's not really my bag. I think the one, if you're going to plant one concern flag, it would be... Are we sure Carmi can cook? <laughs> you're really not afraid, are you? Um, no, Sam Levinson has just freed me up. That's right. To be myself. <laughs> just to run towards controversy, because yeah. that's where the real art lies. Yeah. The show is now, I think, and I appreciate this, it is now flying close to the to the reality sun. And we see this in the third episode when, when Sydney goes on a, an eating tour where she crosses paths with real people in Chicago, real restaurants. She also would have had um, complete she, she, renal failure. She would have died. Yes. She would have died. Um, Given the amount of food she eats. It is, it is absolutely the correct analogy. The, the, that thing you do problem is, if everyone's talking about this being the greatest song ever, what if the song's not good enough? Right. The benefit here is we don't taste the food, A, which is good. B, what I... Th- and, and, and the show is... St- and Maddie Matheson, who plays Neil, who's phenomenal, is a really good cook and is there... Chris Storr's sister is Courtney Storr, who's the yes. who's the chef at John and Vinny's here in L.A. and is a, a a great cook in her own right. They have plenty of people to lean on to to advise on. I'm that sure part that it. I it will but, eventually be fine, but I'm just no. no but I also yeah. think that one of the things that the show gets right is it it strips away a lot of the preciousness and artistry that those of us who enjoy going to nice restaurants want there to be. You know, it is unglamorous. It is repetitive. It is work. Sometimes it's just too salty. Sometimes you're not hungry. And so the way that they, the the attention being paid to the way they build dishes, I think is pretty rare in TV and, and kind of awesome. Yeah. Because we're used to, I mean, we're just coming off of a good season of Top Chef where these chefs have 30 minutes to come up with an entirely groundbreaking plated thing. And somehow it's always amazing. Right. Um, maybe it's not. Or maybe they're bad ideas and maybe we're, it's, a, it's a gentle edit. You know what I mean? Like this stuff is granular and it can be taxing. And I like that aspect of it. I also think that we're headed towards another thing in the show, which is that th- this real value of a restaurant isn't necessarily the ingredients in the chaos menu. It is the, it's, it's, it's the people you made along the way. It's the vibe. There's it's another the, thing to it where uh, I... I think one of the themes that keeps coming up through the dialogue is this idea of like you fail, you fail, you fail mm-hmm. to get to this place where you are happy or satisfied or whatever. And um, I'm sure with food, just the way it is with writing, just the way it is with painting, just the way it is with carpentry, just the way it is with any pursuit, you're going to make a lot of fucking bad versions of that dish before mm-hmm. you find something that you actually like. And we're we're just getting to see 
the like you marinated this too long and it's too salty or like this needs like acid or whatever it is. And I think watching these two people who are not friends, you know, like they're not, they're not, they didn't come into this as, Carmian said, not coming into this as, hey, we're like lifelong pals who are going to try this out. They're like, we recognize a drive in one another, but there's like a lot of feeling around in the dark for like, how are we, who are we to one another? And I think that that's like one of the big things that kind of emerges, especially in three, as it starts to like maybe distrust Carmi a little bit. I, 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 yeah. And I think one of the things that you hear, this is not groundbreaking to observe, but when you talk to cooks and people who've been in that is that it attracts a certain type of person for a reason. It attack, it, the, the profession attracts people with addictive tendencies because it's so ephemeral and that every day you are thrown into the arena and all you have is your knife and your inner strength and then you get your ass handed to you and then the next day you do it again because all the things you cooked are gone. You know, you, I think there are artistic parallels of, you know, uh, artistry versus craft or repetition parallels to any field like writing. Yeah. But if you bust your ass for however long you do to write a book and it's you're lucky enough to have it published, it exists and other people can read it past the first sit down. Sure. You know, and then you can move on to something else. And it is damaging to people who do this kind of intensity every night forever until they either burn out or, or, or move on to something else. And, and you start to see that because they hate this deadline, but they also fucking love it. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, they have to come back to the restaurant and be like, I can't sleep. Like, we know we have to go harder. Otherwise, in episode two, I just thought I would mention the two, two appearance of two... Two wonderful uh, additions to the cast. Yep. One is Molly Gordon, who people might have seen in Shiva Baby. Um, as I don't know, I'm not going to say Carmi's love interest yet because I don't know that. But it sure sure you, seemed like they you were, don't know that they, they they were exchanging some Kaya Q strange currencies, some vibes in the uh, uh-huh. in the bodega. And uh, Robert fucking Townsend as Sid's dad. God, I love that scene. Hollywood Shuffle, Robert Townsend, very important figure for our generation. Of course, and. Yeah. He, you know, this show's fucking casting. Yeah. It, again, like you write a really well, it's a really wonderful scene. And it, it's wonderful, like so much about the bear. Maybe it's like so much of cooking. I'm going to keep working this analogy as long as I can. In that there are only so many ingredients to combine in so many ways. And so when you introduce a new character and they're talking about a third new character, Sid's mother, who's not there, the, the trope of like have character tell a beautiful anecdote about the person so you feel their presence. Like, we've seen, probably every time we sit down to watch something, there's a version of that. Yeah. So that's not new. But it's a fantastic story. And then you cast Robert Townsend, who's telling the story. He knows this person. You know, it's just a simple, it's simple, it's the simple act of really good acting. Right. He knows the person he's talking about and he smiles because he's thinking of somebody. And then that person is in that moment, in the room, in that diner. I loved it. And... The Molly Gordon thing, so I don't... The Molly Gordon piece? The Molly Gordon piece. Turn the TikTok camera on. (laughs) I don't remember. She was in Booksmart too, I think. Again, I just can't help but think about the process where they write this character. And I don't know whether it was Joanna Callow or or Chris or the two of them, or they had a great writer's room for season two, how that, the dialogue and the choices of how that scene played out worked. But someone cracked their knuckles and they were like, we're going to write a flirtation scene for the ages. And then you still have to cast it. And you have to cast someone who is so many things right away, has to have a history, has to be confident, has to be um, attractive to Carmi, let alone to the audience, but also has to look like they live in fucking Chicago Mm -hmm. and curse like that and be and hang. Right. And frankly, that crosses off 
I would imagine the first 15 people that a not paying close attention casting director in LA might have sent. Sure. Sure. Um, which is not to disparage the lovely um, Molly Gordon. I'm just saying, like, she just looks like someone I hadn't seen before who lives there. Right. And I feel I feel like that level of care goes into every decision they make. The the sort of uh, Friday Night Lights magical realism, and I, when I say magical realism, I, I obviously don't mean the Hundred Years of Solitude version of it. But oh, like, you mean the Love in the Time of Cholera version? Yeah, that version. But no, the heightened like reality. Like Water for Chocolate. The heightened reality is the word I want to say, mm-hmm. which is that these are two people absolutely staring holes in the back of each other's heads. R.E.M. is playing. And, you know, like, the the real-life version of that is some dude is like, I just need to get oat milk. Can you guys move out of the way of the fridge here? The real-life version of it is that they lock eyes across Tedros's club. Mm-hmm. Because that That's right. prior... To this episode of The Bear. And then Carmi's like, have I ever told you the story about how I almost <laughs> saw Madonna at Miss Shapes? I thought you were going to say, this is the secret about Prince. <laughs> I, I, I just feel like this really was revelatory to me because up to now, I thought that the way people interacted on the idol was like the height of sexiness yeah. and attraction. Uh-huh. And maybe I was wrong. Maybe everything I know is a lie, he said as he quietly brushed his hair in the studio. Episode three. I thought that the, the group meeting... And this guy who's like, I just don't know how to find any amusement or joy in my life. And because of that, I don't know how to provide that for other people Mm -hmm. was incredibly succinct and very effective and very well done. (laughs) And someone... Go on. (laughs) I know. I mean, like, I'm 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 fun loving, but I get it. You know what I mean? I was very excited. I think I wrote down the note as the episode was beginning... Carmi and Sid date night exclamation point because I was like oh not not a romantic date but I was like are these guys going to go eat together this is going to be awesome and instead it turns into this sort of solo odyssey for Sydney not only an eating adventure but a kind of uh, ghost of Christmas future talking to her about what can go wrong yeah. in a restaurant partnership and when you mix business into and, a, a kind of quasi personal relationship. And every place she goes is real. Like they said meet at Kasama and I Googled it and it's like it seems like a fucking awesome Filipino American cafe and all yes. these places are real. Avec of course is a very famous restaurant in Chicago. I just think that I would have had a stroke about two two restaurant stops in. Now they don't okay, so one thing that I know for sure, having gone dined with chefs is they really do order the fuck out of everything. They order everything to try. Generally, though, you also then get food fucked. Like, you get extra courses. Yes. From people who both, in the kitchen, who both who know you and then want to share their food, but also want to make you uncomfortable mm-hmm. and want to cause you pain. Um, I think the pros know you don't finish it. So, Sydney didn't, we didn't see... Right. The, the, the one thing that I thought was a there little sus... There were some sus, repeats, too. Like, they would show they, things... To, more than once. And I yeah. did wonder if that was they didn't do enough pickup shots. No, or, I bet it's more just like the the kind of... Um, it, the reason what, what I really wanted to say yes. is that this is one of the great visualizations of what creative inspiration feels like. Right, when the dumplings come together in her mind. But it's the flickering. And it's like she yeah. sees the plate, she sees the splatter, the dumplings are starting to be there, the, the mint leaves or whatever she's putting uh, on yeah. top. Are they ravioli? Are they dumplings? They're inspired yeah, like by both. The way that she's kind of, you know, uh, starting to see it, and the way that she finds the inspiration by being on the architectural cruise around Chicago. I actually love that building. That's the the weird. Um, 
I don't know, almost looks like a honeycomb. The corn cob, the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot building. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Damn, I feel real basic now, knowing that it's the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot building. Isn't it? I Yeah, but I just feel basic as shit. Okay. Because I was like, yo, come that, on, you gotta fine. be like, you're fucking other, you gotta be like, no way, Chris, you're a flower. You're a nice guy. I mean, what do you want me to say? <laughs> <laughs> Dickhead. If, maybe if you had seen Madonna in 2005, I'd I hope be a we have Ao on the show so that we can ask her how much she had to eat that day. I also hope you have her on the show to be like, "You're such a good actress, fucking <laughs> <laughs> Chris Farley." Yeah, and also like, who the fuck went to Duke on that staff? Oh, because of the Shashevsky yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean, are you kidding me? By the way, we, we should shout out also Joanna Kahlo, who is the co-showrunner, um, direct the director of this episode. I don't know if she had directed episodes in the past, so it, it was interesting that if this was her first, that it was a very visual um a lot of visual storytelling mm -hmm. a lot of those cutaways were you offended about the duke stuff or do you feel like i think there's a lot of really great coaches out there who have written books yes yeah which one would you recommend bob huggins um no that's i didn't i didn't register <laughs> for a second there's a long pause that. the problem is, is you've that always liked the bearcats i, I think like 60 percent to 80 percent of the coaches you could have mentioned right mm -hmm. there have also had like yeah. some weird fucked up like arrest or some but you know some other you, thing didn't you used to like cincinnati like the basketball all team? right we don't have to get into that i used to that's like, not basic that's it, spicy now yeah you're just a guy who likes the idol i was into deshaun stevenson Okay. Yeah. I respect that. And they used to wear headbands and the, the uniforms were all black. You were also a UNLV guy too, right? No, I wasn't. I don't mean like you were a booster. I no, don't mean like I like were... Stacey Ogman. Okay. I mean, you want to go back through the 1980s and 90s of college hoops? What I'd like to do is sit I, here. I liked Billy Owens too. It doesn't mean I like Syracuse. <laughs> I'd like to name the four to six college basketball programs I'm aware of and just interrogate you about whether you like them or not. I was a big Fab Five guy. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Uh, where else was I? We're, we're talking about Sydney's food tour. I just loved you know these little touches like when she gets she orders everything in the menu at Kasama and then sits down and is given all the food and then gets the message that Carmi's bailing on her mm -hmm. and she just looks at it and it communicates so much and then she she thumbs ups it thumbs thumb ups I know. it and I thought it was cool that they stuck with her the entire episode rather than cutting back and forth between Carmi like moving her refrigerator yeah we didn't see any of it do. yeah if I believe if I'm, if I'm uh, right. it was also a very very uh, lovely detail that she goes and cooks by herself after she has the, what she gets home, mm -hmm. she gets back to the restaurant, finds out that they've like started knocking down everything without telling her. Yeah. And then I think she goes off to go and uh, recipe test by herself. And I thought that that was, those things where you have to like carve out private time, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? That's what I do a lot on Twitch is just to get away from you. <laughs> it's um, just monologue on Twitch. <laughs> While you're playing what? About my FIFA? top 100 college basketball <laughs> coaches of all time. Okay guys, it's Chris again. Yeah. Um, Not a lot of people one, know this about Steve Fisher, but he Billy, was a <laughs> Billy Donovan. You know, he gets a back lot of shit back. for his work in the league, but he was. Um, I can't believe we still have to talk about Secret Wars. I, that's true. Oh, we oh, should Secret Invasion. We should pause on the bear because we have so many more to go. But like, we haven't even, and I, it's. I believe there's a lot of Marcus coming up in the next episode. That's been made clear to me. There's a location element involved that many people in my life have already felt free to spoil for I me. I didn't spoil it. I just said, you're going to barf when you see this. You didn't. <laughs> but other people yeah. uh, did not, are not not as good friends as you are. Well, you and I have a very... Aggressive. Eh, I think it's just like... Antagonistic. I think you and I are both like... Like if you're ahead of mm -hmm. me in a show, uh huh. I can tell that you are resisting telling me what I'm missing. I just fall silent. No, you do not. <laughs> no, you do not. <laughs> And then if I'm ahead of you in a show, yeah. I try to respect it. You know what was a good example of this? 
Um, the other night, I was like, LOL, this is a text, LOL, the flash tanked, exclamation uh-huh. point. And you were like, would you like to know every cameo in the film yeah. per Wikipedia? And I wrote back, no. And I just didn't write back. No, and this is the first time we've spoken since then. <laughs> <laughs> and you can feel the tension. Um, so we just did the first three episodes. We're going to do so good. the next watch three more. episodes on Monday. And then we will finish the bear on Thursday. And hopefully we can get some special guests. I want, I want everybody involved and, in the show. And I here. just, I can't talk or listen enough about this. So like I said, Van and Joe, I believe, are doing it on, on Prestige TV Pod. Also, you know what's fun to do when watching the bear? You should not second screen it. But if you did have an app open, it should be Shazam. In case you, you're not aware of just like... You know you can just like look up hit. what were the songs in that episode? No, I don't trust Google. Okay. Not even for flash spoilers. I Nothing do that, important. but it's like my wife has Shazam. And mm-hmm. so it's just like very like, can you come in here and Shazam this? Like, You know that it's a free app. Like you, you could get it. I don't, I don't need any more apps. You, you borrow Phoebe's phone to Shazam things? That's so cute. <laughs> that's, that's really sweet. I borrow her. I'm like, you come to me and Shazam this. It, when I Shazam things, it's pretty urgent you know what i mean like you're in a store and there's a song and you're like oh let me double check this it's not like i have time to go grab someone yeah it's it's, it's a you're missing out well we live in an on-demand world you know but not you slow slow horses over here secret invasion okay let me can i just like stretch for a second you want to take a break i I, no okay i've been fired up to talk to you about this since the first five minutes i didn't want to lead with this Mm -mm. i did i didn't want to lead in the dark i wanted to lead in the light yes Secret Invasion. The new Marvel I'm series. I'm just going to keep saying the title of the show. Starring Samuel L. Jackson, Olivia Coleman, Amelia Clark, uh, Kingsley Ben-Adir, uh, a it, bunch of people. It's an insane cast. Martin that, Freeman. In a, in a vacuum, boy, would I be fired up. It was created by Kyle Bradstreet, who worked on Mr. Robot, and it's directed mm-hmm. by Ali Salim, who's done episodes of Condor and Looming Tower. I mentioned these credits because everything about this show suggests I should like it. Mm-hmm. everything about the resumes of the people involved suggested is something that should really get the butter going, you know? Like, let's get, like, <laughs> sure they say like, in the Chicago I don't know. I'm just trying world? to think of new ways to say, like, I should, I was excited for this. Yeah. Um, ben Mendelsohn, did you mention Ben Mendelsohn? Ben Mendelsohn uh, getting Scooby-Doo'd a lot, pulling off that mask. It's about the internecine squabbles between the Skrulls, a refugee alien race living on Earth, and there's like a hardline version of the scrolls led by Kingsley Gravick, led by Kingsley Benadir, right? Who are trying to uh, force humanity's hand, I guess, to, mm. to get them their new planet that they had promised. And then there is the the centrist Ben Mendelsohn, who's like, you know, we live among these people. We don't have to like, we don't have to fight. He's, he's Andrew Yang, and third party. I, I got to be completely honest. I I completely forgot that that Nick Fury had been in space for yeah. several years, um, which is the main character that's on you trait of Nick Fury in this show is that he has returned from sounds like setting up a missile defense system in outer space. Saber. Uh mm-hmm. to find out what's going on with this scroll inter civil war. Mm-hmm. And um aside from the fact that it is set in Moscow and it doesn't particularly feel like it. Or that watching it both requires a familiarity with Captain Marvel, which I do not have, and the plight of the scrolls, and the fact that nothing bothers me more than things that try to be like things I like. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just don't think this show has any juice, man. I just, 
I and I think the the problem is is that they have run out of runway with this tone, mm-hmm. and the tone is not serving the material anymore. Even if it was kind of flat, which I think it is, and even if it was, which just whatever. I mean, like I I know what I'm getting involved in. You can't you can't go into this show and be like scrolls. This shit sucks. Like just watch Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy if that's what you want to watch. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm getting involved yes. in. Yes, but this show is about dirty bombs and the possibility of a world war between Russia and America and um, terrorism and espionage and all this stuff. Why the fuck are we still being so glib? Why is everybody still doing the same like diet Whedon banter from the last 20 years? Like, can they? I think that's where they may need to shift this stuff up a little bit and have people talk differently. Like Andor. There, there is, no matter how successful comic book adaptations get, it seems like there is still, not, not, not increasingly not successful, but there is still a little bit of shame, I think, involved in the people who make this. And they are a little bit embarrassed how fundamentally silly it is that there's a shape-shifting group of green aliens with scrotum chins running wild on earth and the uh, world, you know, the intelligence agencies have to get involved. Yeah. So they make it very serious. And so once again, we have essentially the same plot as Captain America and, and Winter, Falcon and Winter Soldier, where there's just a bunch of dissidents and a lot of refugees huddled into a place with absolutely no empathy, no interest, no character. There's just refugees who want something and they blow stuff up. But again, this is PG-13, so they explode things, but That's no what one... happens in this. When no one gets hurt. goes off at the end of the episode of Secret Invasion, it's like... Like, quick, it, cut to Kobe Smulders helping a child. Yeah. Nobody's actually hurt. There's a lot of stakes, but there's no stakes. This is for everyone, it's for no one. Everyone has their own limit with this, and I'm sure I've said things like this before when talking about multiverse, uh, Doctor Strange or whatever, but I think it's time to is have... This, is this your letter to the Players' Tribune? It's time for a wellness check. Okay. I believe that in the state of California, you can in, inter, you can intervene in someone's having some sort of a breakdown or a psychotic episode and the police won't be involved, but like medical health professionals will come and just check. Uh-huh. Maybe give you a talk, maybe give you a chance to take a walk, express some things. Because things are not okay at Marvel Entertainment. It's not okay. This is, and I say this, I want to say this carefully, because you named at the top, there are so many talented people involved in the show who gave their all and gave their best and worked in difficult conditions and tried to squeeze something through an almost impossible uh, tube to get to where we are. I don't think that what I'm about to say is the result of any personal or creative failing of the people who worked on the show. But this is a mess, and it's bad. And I feel like people, I feel like even the people, like even at Marvel, they must kind of understand it unless they just want to be absolutely mid for the rest of their times in this job mm-hmm. it, it it's a it's a mess that can't even have fun with its own concept like just fundamentally the idea that we begin with a f- of a familiar character in this case martin freeman's agent ross or whatever his name is um but not but not that's right that's correct you know what i mean like you know you know, you know when you talk to like when you hear draft experts and they're like this pick was defensible like, this is how this something like this should begin. And if you can get one of the movie people 
but not one of the major ones, to do this cameo because sure. you're filming in London anyway. Great. Make it Martin Freeman. But they kind of fumble even that because there's so much baggage here. He has to show up and then he has to do his light banter, as you were saying, that they always do. With Do you know that was, that was Beric from Game of Thrones? I did not know that. Freaking out as a crazy conspiracy guy, explaining scrolls. But then that guy gets shot somehow by who? I wasn't clear. And then Martin Freeman runs, and then we have a classic MCU. It's way too dark to understand what's going on, and it's time to look elsewhere until they're done chasing scene. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the scene, after we've introduced other characters and talked about stuff, and then fucking Ben Mendelsohn is like with his weird Australian lisp being like, remember me? And everyone's like, nope. Ben Mendelsohn being like, I'm not yet 40. <laughs> okay, buddy. Come on, dog. You could choose any shape. He's a good looking guy, but come no, on. I mean, but he, yeah, but I wouldn't be like the 40 year old Ben Mendelsohn. <laughs> no. And then all of that to end with being like, oh, and by the way, this guy's one of them too. They step on their own reveal. It was a long way of saying that that scene was too long and too confusing. You know, it, there is no there there for any of this. Half of the scenes are Sam Jackson talking to people that he supposedly met before and Olivia Coleman's having a good time. And then the other scenes are, are scenes of people he has met before in an absolutely C-minus movie from five years ago. What movie? Captain fucking oh, yeah, Marvel. Right, right, right. And they're like <laughs> hugging each other. <laughs> and then you just end up twisting yourself into knots where it's like the scrolls could be anybody, but we couldn't cast anybody from the movies, so they're just going to be Russian art dealers because they're just going to be terrorists, like a sort of broad bad guy in any other movie. Yeah. And then you have it all hinging on... What was the whole thing of... What are the shells that they have? Like, well, they're like, they have dudes in... Oh, my God. So they well, I'll, can't... I'll talk about that. Well, we can talk about that, but I just mean, already you're behind the eight ball when you're like, this evil scrolls have invaded the earth, but they're not really evil. Only some of them are evil. And one of the main ones isn't evil. And that one's daughter, who, by the way, was played by a child in the Captain Marvel movie. So this is all continuity yeah. that Amelia Clark Gaia. is now Gaia. He named her Earth. <laughs> anyway, that one is good. One, the, many of them are bad. One of them is mostly good. What, what are we doing? What are the lines here? The Secret Invasion comic book storyline was good and it was a big classic Marvel thing where it's like, guess what? Tony Stark's been a scroll for the last 10 years or whatever. Yeah. This is like, guess what? A guy we cast out of Rada for day player role has been a scroll. Who cares? So the, 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 the thing was that you're talking about was that I guess they, they were having them not just impersonate people, but become people by wiping their minds, not just how they look. But this fucking MCU teaching me about refugee camps for the second straight mediocre show? Come on. Although I was thinking... Put some respect on Flag Smash. Kingsley Ben Eater is pretty cool. Yeah, he's a... That, so is Olivia Coleman. Him sitting there and being like, you know, drink, putting the sugar cubes in his coffee. I was like, I wish this was in a regular spy show. Yeah, because you know what's not cool? The guy showing up to the Skrull refugee camp and then being handed like a bright blue plastic <laughs> fruit and being like, where did you get this space fruit? She's like, we grow only <laughs> Skrull crops here. Fuck off. Oh, man. Not every, this is purple and blue nonsense, man. But do you think that the part of this is like, should you, it's not should you know better, but it's not like you didn't know what Secret Invasion was going to be about. So what is it about the execution that's different than the, the story? Or was, it, it, were I, you never looking forward to this? Well, the idea, I mean, there are a couple ideas, more than a couple, a couple dozen storylines from Marvel, particularly from the last 20, 25 years 
that are just really good log lines, like really good ideas. And the, 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 the secret wars thing that they're potentially building up to is one of those really good ideas. Miles Morales is another one of those really good ideas. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ms. Marvel, like a lot of these things have been drawn not from the... 60-year history of Marvel, but more recent history when a lot of really good writers were empowered to come up with really big um, status quo-shaking ideas. But I knew they were never going to do that because this is a TV show, you know, and they couldn't... I I, I thought that this was a likely storyline for the next phase, honestly, with the movies. But they went in a different direction and they also made this... They did the reveal in the Captain Marvel movie that the scrolls were actually... were good, actually, which isn't necessarily a thing that's ever been... That's not canon. No, I mean they they were they were fantastic for villains when they were created, but um, it's not that it's that that this like the like all of the last TV shows I think other than Loki to me have felt like absolute chores. They're just absolute homework. Um, there is no lightness. There is no joy. There is no fun. There is no tonal point of view. They can they can talk about Lakari all they want in interviews, and I'm sure they like him, and I'm sure that they did things. Yeah. But it's like, it's set in Moscow. Why? Because other spy shows have been set there? Why? What, you know what I mean? It's well, because not... of the nuclear plants. Okay. Yeah. Well, you answered that one. Yeah. Is Nick Fury a tad more get these snakes off my motherfucking plane than he used to be? Didn't, didn't was you... it the blip or was it his time on Sabre that brought the full Samuel Jackson experience to the show? I really like that you, when you texted, you said, this, is he a little more royale with cheesy? Which I think. Look, I'm. I'll watch Samuel Jackson read the yeah. phone book, and Samuel Jackson will read the phone book. But I, I just, I just am curious whether or not I missed a piece of continuity there. I think it's more that Nick Fury has never been a character; he's just been like a seamstress stitching together things. Gotcha. And him being in the credits of Iron Man 15 years ago really was him saying, "I want to do. I want to be a superhero." And then we'll figure out the rest of it later. And then the comics raced to, to turn a historically uh, white character with like a white beard into Sam Jackson by making a new Nick Fury Jr. who looks like Sam Jackson. But anyway, yeah, he's... You can kind of feel the pulse, not just of the show, but of the creative hope for the show in those scenes because the people making it were like, we have, we're writing a TV show with Sam fucking Jackson in it. You know what I mean? Like, let's give him some swagger. Let's give him something to play with. Let's give him a let's give him a jewel scene yeah. in the art gallery that ends with an absolute nothing burger boring fight that like all of these things end in. I mean, I I think again, when you're failing on both sides of the ball, you're not excelling at anything. Like the character work isn't as good as other TV shows. The special effects isn't as good as other TV shows at this point. And the action set pieces are certainly not lighting anything on fire. They're absolute, like, time to look away and do something else while people are fighting and punching and running or whatever they're doing. That is the biggest indictment. And if there are three of those per show, then you're, like, basically, like, not paying attention to a third of the television show. And the other, I think the other issue is one that you you were hinting at when you were talking about or suggesting when we were talking about the problem with multiversal storytelling is there's stakes fatigue. I don't understand anything that matters anymore mm-hmm. in any of these movies. And I think that's important for the casual fan, you know, um, not just because there's always going to be another Spider-Man or another multiverse to pull from. But in this case, it's like every one of the last six things that they've made has been an existential threat to Earth and life as we know it. But really? Are they? 
Are they all? And I maybe at some point in the second episode, we'll have the throwaway line where it's like, well, why don't you call Carol Danvers? Sure. And he'll be like, they're busy. Don Cheadle is just getting cucked by President Dermot Mulroney. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. You're right. It's, it, it's less fun, actually, to be complaining about this than I was hoping it would be, only because I think it's just a fucking bummer. And it's another slog for me. It's just another slog. I, when you read people, and I don't mean like shills. I mean, there are people who are like, Marvel's got its mojo back with a spy thriller. Who wrote that? Did somebody write that? Have you seen headlines that suggest Chat GPT. That? No, but uh, I, I have seen comments of people being like, I haven't loved the last few, but like this I one's for me. I think that this has got more potential than a couple of the other shows that have been on in the last few. I, I think I'm just like, now we are getting to the point. It's like, a, you know, it's like any relationship. Mm. And you know, if things start going wrong and then you wake up one day and you're like, we've been fighting for longer than we've been in love, you know? And I think wow. that that might be getting to that point with Marvel. I think so. Surely just because also of how much stuff they've put out because of the Disney Plus expansion. I think now we're at like about two-thirds of this I think is pretty mid if not bad. And then there's one-third of it that I'm pretty into or liked or mm-hmm. did stuff. And, you know, maybe in 10 years if we're still doing this. <laughs> <laughs> if we're still doing this. Uh, uh-huh. we'll look back and we're like, wasn't that a weird three-year, four-year run before they got to Fantastic Four and X-Men? And they had to like pretend like Loki and, and you know, Kang were a big deal. Uh, but I don't know. I'm not interested in that long of a tale. I, I just think that I don't have any faith in their ability to do Fantastic Four or X-Men right now. I think they are completely lost in their own sauce. And even the idea that I think we've gotten is that the Fantastic Four movie will be born out of the events of Secret Wars. Well, you're fucked. Mm-hmm. Just make a good movie. Make a, a good movie. Try that. Maybe, and maybe behind the scenes, that is what they're doing. Maybe they've siloed it off and Matt Shackman is in there, you know, just working blissfully unaware of what else is going on in the larger secret invasion scheme of things or secret anything. That's, that's just not the point of what they do. But it's not the point of what they do. And it, the whole point is that you have to remember what happens in Captain Marvel. I mean, I, I think I should probably save some of this vitriol because honestly, look at the rest of the release slate this year. Like the Marvels, this is the, 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 all of their projects just seem like answers to questions nobody was asking. Well, well, I'll, I'll be very curious to see how, how this is received both now. Critically, it seems like it's been like a little bit more in like, Hey, yeah, you know what? This isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, or it's pretty good. This is pretty good for a Marvel show. I, I think I'll be curious to see how it, it, people respond to it fan wise. And, um, and I think that you're right to say that if there are, and I, and I, 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 it's it's too late for me to be like, I'm sorry if I was dismissive of people who just like this in their, in their entertainment. They exist, and I'm happy that they're happy. I do think that the central... You don't seem dr- that happy that they're I, happy. I'm not that happy. <laughs> I'm not ever happy when someone else is happy. <laughs> Jealous and bitter. Um, I hope that the larger drumbeat of what we're saying here, though, is can be heard, which is that something is really rotten here. Something has curdled. Yeah. And... Um, I don't know, I certainly don't know what the answer is. And I think that they're too ramped up in the production cycle and release dates to be able to address it. It just, you just feel that sort of slick, sick, desperate feeling of things falling through your fingers because there was a release, this had to, this has been delayed quite a bit. And I have no doubt that this is the best version of what they were able to do and that people gave their all, but it's everybody involved deserves better. You want to, you want to set up Nicole a little bit here? Speaking of things that hurt my feelings. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, this is nice when we have the ability to go from negative to positive, which is just to say that Nicole Hall of Center has been one of my favorite filmmakers since I saw Walking and Talking at the Ritz in Philadelphia um, back in the 90s. And she's made seven films, all of which are worthwhile, all of which mine, very similar, um, really smart, really empathetic, really interesting, and often really funny uh, terrain. Lovely and Amazing from 2001 is one of my favorite people. Um, Oh, should also check out Friends with Money and Please Give. And I feel like another one of her best films um, and her other collaboration with Julia, Julia Louis-Dreyfus was Enough Said, which came out 10 years ago and was James Gandolfini's mm-hmm. last movie. And he's incredible in it. Um, you Hurt My Feelings is, we talk about it in the interview, but it, it's about uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus who plays a novelist who is in a loving marriage with um, her husband, Don, who's a therapist who has some very, very funny patients David Cross, Zach Cherry from Severance. And he's very supportive of her in all ways and of the manuscript she's been toiling over. And then one day she overhears him speaking to uh, their brother-in-law, played by our buddy, I think. I feel like he's our buddy. I've never met him. But Arian Moyed from Stewie on Succession yeah. saying that he he hates her book. <laughs> and uh, he can't read another draft of it. And this sends her into an emotional tailspin. It's really funny, but it's also just like really heartening that there are still great stories being told about small emotional moments that ring true. I really hope people check out the movie, but also check out this podcast. We talk about movies versus TV. Um, no, we, we should do, we should talk about that you, between you and me one of these times. I feel like we have a podcast, so we, we could talk about those things, but I was, it was a pleasure to talk to you. All Nicole. right, so Monday we'll be back. Kai McMullen with us. Who produced this episode? Yeah, and all of our episodes, and we'll talk about the uh, idols. I think so. And we'll talk about the next the f- episodes four through six of the. Bear. Also, we didn't we ran out of time. We didn't talk Black Mirror, so we got to throw that on the mm-hmm. on the docket because mm-hmm. I've been watching some Black Mirror. Yeah, Has that affirmed your reaffirmed your faith in humanity. I feel really good about where we're headed. Yeah, especially families. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a lot of strong strong family stories. In Bye, this Andy. That's it. You're saying bye to me? Yeah. Let's get into my interview with Nicole Hall Center. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. 
Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Overjoyed to be joined by one of my favorite filmmakers in the world, Nicole Holof Center. Her seventh film as writer and director, You Hurt My Feelings, is in theaters now. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. I'm so thrilled to talk to you. Thank you so much. That's so flattering. I'm happy to be here. I'm going to flatter you again, I hope, by saying my daughters are out of school. I took them to see Spider-Verse the other week, which we all loved. And then the next day I saw your film in the theaters and they asked me how it was. And I said, it's kind of like my Spider-Verse. Like... <laughs> Yay. The only thing missing was Catherine Keener swinging in after the credits to say that, she, you know, there was a super team she was putting together. That's right. Of, uh, That's of, of smart yeah. women in New York City. Did you stay really to the end? Because there is something like that at the end. No, there's not. There is? No, there's not. No. Oh, my God. That was my bit. And then to think that I got burned. <laughs> okay. Next time. Um, so you hurt my feelings is driven by a moment of unplanned candor, let's say. Uh, a wife overhears her husband confessing that he doesn't really love the book that she's been toiling over for for a number of years. Was that an actual lived experience for you, or did that just was that just born from anxiety that many of us share? Um, mainly born from anxiety. No, I did hear in film school when I screened my big um, short film, my overly long short film, I did hear a friend of mine behind me say something like, when is this going to end? Please, <laughs> no. or please make it end. And I thought I had a, a good film. And then I realized I didn't. That was horrible. And a hundred years ago. Um, but you, you've forgotten it clearly. Yeah. I don't even know who said it. I'll give you his phone number. <laughs> yeah, actually, we have him in the Zoom waiting room. This is, <laughs> if only. This is a planned intervention. That would be so good. Um, but yeah, more born out of anxiety and what if. The what ifs in life uh, kind of inspire me more than things that have actually happened. Yeah. So, so from the moment of that seed or a what if, how, how do you nurture it and water it in, in, into the point where it becomes an actual screenplay? Mm -hmm. No, it's not easy. Uh, no. Let me think. You know, I guess I start with that theme, that what if, and then how would she react? And I had many, many versions of how she might react and just landed on a more subtle one. And I start writing it. I set her up to be insecure to begin with. Right. And, um, you know, her book's not getting bought by her agent or sold by her agent. And and then I just start writing and creating characters, sometimes with the knowledge that their issues will be similar to the theme. And sometimes it just turns out that way. Like it's kind of an unconscious thing. And luckily things pay off because of that. I don't know what I'm saying, but yeah. 
Well, I think that, um, so in the, in the film, so the characters are Beth as a writer played incredibly by Julie Louis-Dreyfus, whom you worked with before in the also brilliant Enough Said. Um, and Don, her husband, is played by Tobias Menzies, who I'd really only seen wearing armor and being sneaky in period pieces or Game of Thrones stuff. So this was nice to see him in Tevas. Oh. <laughs> um, so she's an author and he's a therapist. And I love the fact that you pair two professions that both carry some sort of implicit authority, but those who have the jobs sometimes struggle with that authority or feeling like worthy of it. And, and they also have to deal with levels of honesty. Does that fit what you were saying about sort of finding your way into characters that might suit the theme? Or was that a more uh, considered decision that these would be perfect pair, a perfect pairing of professions? You know, no, so much of it is, is flying by the seat of my pants. Like I thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun if Don was a therapist, a bad therapist? Okay. He's a bad therapist. And then that just inspires so much, you know, um, and then later realize, okay, you know, maybe all of this comes together. Like Michaela Watkins character is a, you know, um, interior designer and she gets rejected all the time. And then when she gets actually not rejected and praised, she feels worse because it points out that her profession has no meaning for her. So it's funny because I don't outline my movies or make treatments or or anything. So it's kind of messy and scary, but I prefer it that way. And some, and I just keep telling myself as I go along, like, well, I've done this before. I hope this one will work out, you know, and just kind of go page by page. I love that you said, or I'm interested that you said that, that Don's a bad therapist because he certainly begins to feel that way. And you have the real life married couple, David Cross and Amber Tamblyn, just tearing into each other and then tearing into him. So he's not doing his best work there. But do you yeah. feel like, is he is he bad or is he just like anyone good at some things and not good at everything and keeping up a facade? I couldn't quite tell because we see him have a, a more tender long-term uh, therapist relationship with an older man who's who. Yeah. whose work wraps up over the course of the film. Exactly. Well, that was kind of to prove the point that, yes, he can be helpful. And he was to this man and they had an intimate relationship as um, therapist and patient. But I kind of feel like um, he's going through a, a bit of a midlife crisis, hence the vanity yeah. and, and staring off into space during therapy sessions. I mean, I've been in couples therapy where the therapist just watches us fight. Yeah. And, um, I've literally said, we can do this at home. Like we fight well at home, stop us, help us. Um, I mean, I never behaved as stupidly as those two do on the couch. I'm definitely more involved than that. Well, you also have the great Zach Cherry, who people may know from Severance, who gets very frustrated. And and I, and I have to say, you, you, you confess something, I'll confess something as well, that I had a therapist who I'd been seeing for some months who then called me by the wrong name, which just sort of shatters everything. Because you know, you're oh kind of like, God. Hey, Jonathan, how are you feeling today? It was worse. It was it was Danny, which is not not Andy, but it's not Andy. You know. What did so, you do? I saw him for another seven years. You know, I mean, what are you supposed to do? It'd be awkward. <laughs> you know, you don't want to make it worse. No, and you just, just let him call you Danny. Yeah, and the truth is, Danny's doing great now. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm not, but uh, but he is. He's doing well. Um, the, this idea of of sort of radical honesty or something like I, it's such an interesting idea. One thing that I think we learn as we get older is that the idea of being truly transparent and honest is not necessarily a kindness that it's often can be an act of, of, of selfishness. And I, 
kind of love to, I love the way that played out in the movie, not just in the professional themes, but also in the personal ones with the parenting, where Beth, Julie Louis-Dreyfus's character, is caught between her mother, who's played brilliantly by Jeannie Berlin, who is honest to an almost homicidal degree, saying that, you know, <laughs> your, your book should have done better, you should have done these things, which hurt her. And it almost, you can see the, the way that many of us parent not in moderation, but in complete reaction. So she yeah. parents her son in the movie by showering him with kindness that actually begins to feel dishonest. Correct. You said it very well. I don't know if I have anything to add. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I dealt with that theme yesterday and mm. it's, you know, I, I started it, I think with lovely and amazing when Emily stands naked in front of Dermot Mulroney because she wants to finally hear it. And, you know, she's stunning and slim and perfect, but it doesn't matter. And um, I guess she was tired of hearing, you look fine, you look fine, you look fine. She wanted to have the truth. And yesterday, a friend of mine acted in a short film and I saw some stills from the short film and she looked obese in the stills and she's not even close to obese, mm -hmm. the angle and you know, I think everyone's initial reaction would be, no, you look good. No, you look good. And I was like, honey, you look so fat. This is, this is not you. And I think it made her feel better because mm. I validated her reality, which was, she doesn't look anything like that. And a couple of people were looking at me like, shut up, shut up. And it's like, you're making her feel worse by saying she looks fine. Cause she doesn't look, I don't know. Is that an interesting story? It is an interesting story. And I love, and I'm a little bit salty that you brought up the lovely and amazing scene because I was thinking the same thing. That's, uh -huh. that's one of my favorite movies. And I just feel like there's a constant theme in your movies, this collision of sort of candor and kindness. I was thinking of that scene. I was thinking of the extra guacamole in uh, Enough Said, mm -hmm. um, the entire premise of Friends with Money to a degree. I, it seems like that friction of how we, what we think, how we feel and how we behave is kind of been a driver for you? Is that just something that you feel like you've always been noticing or vibrating to yeah, personally or professionally? Clearly. I mean, I guess so. Maybe professionally it's taken me longer to be the outspoken person or the, I mean, on the set. Yeah. But personally, I know I can be really gruff and people have told me that I can be scary because I guess I cut to the chase. I don't have patience for bullshit. And I'm trying to have more patience um, to let people, you know, lie to themselves if they have to, <laughs> or, you know, it's not my job to constantly be um, telling the truth about other people. I tell the truth about myself. And I, I guess I like, I like that in my dearest friends that they're honest with themselves and with me to some degree. I mean, I'm sure I'm lied to all the time by people who love me and thank God for that. Um, but yeah, this kind of thing about like, yeah, being honest, you know, like, like, you know, the character in the movie, the mom is critical, but she loves her daughter so much, you know, and my mom can be critical, mm -hmm. but I know she loves me so much. So it's, it's a conundrum. It's always a conundrum, I think. Well, it's funny too, because the the mother character, Jeannie Berlin's character, she can do the niceties too. When, when she's at the doctor and the doctor says, you're going to have to pay $800 for the concierge service to get the good care. She goes, oh, of course. 
of course I will, you know, for such a wonderful doctor. And as soon as they're at the diner, she's like, I, never, I need to find a new doctor. No. Well, she had, I mean, she's so put on the spot. I would have done the same thing. I right. Think, you know, but, but it's interesting to hear you talk about your own candor because I feel like for people who aren't familiar with your movies, it mm-hmm. almost would imply that there was some sort of like, you know, uh, ripping the bandaid off aspect to them. And what I thought was just so, this is true for all of your films, but what I found just really rewarding in the new movie was there is this incredibly horrific, traumatic moment for Julia's character. Mm-hmm. Um, and you use that to just continue to kind of explore deeper. And the movie goes to a place of, I think, kindness and honesty. And this catastrophic moment ends up being kind of a, a necessary shakeup for mm-hmm. a relationship that at least, you know, when their son is watching them share a single ice cream cone, doesn't seem that it's particularly in need of a shakeup. No, it's not. I mean, it's not really in need of a shakeup, but I think when you have a creative person in your life, it's, it's always a decision um, how to respond to their work or how to, you know, respond to, does my ass look fat in this? I mean, something as simple as that. Um, But yeah, it really, I guess I asked myself, you know, how, am I my movies and I'm not my movies and I'm always um, battling with that because if someone, you know, doesn't like my movie, you know, I completely flip out as if it's me and I get so hurt, even if they're lying and I can tell they're lying or I think they're lying. And, you know, there's people that I love dearly whose work in the past I haven't been crazy about. Mm -hmm. And um, it didn't matter to me. I still loved and respected them, but I wanted to explore that, especially in a romantic relationship. Like, could I, could I do that? And, um, I, you know, I couldn't be in a relationship with someone who didn't like my films or get them because it would be so baffling to me since I am those characters. I'm all those characters. So I must either be really annoying to this person or they're pretending to get my sense of humor or whatever. Um, Yeah, I don't think I could, my ego could not live there. I think though that Beth and Don, I think that she can, and she's playing a part of me that can because his love for her is so sincere. And it's not about all her work. It's about one one thing. And she understands that he meant well. I think- I mean, all creative people are naturally sensitive by putting themselves out into the world. It's a, it's a brave act. I, yeah. I thought it was really interesting to, that you added the great Arian Moyet's role as well. He, people might know him as Stewie on Succession or in, you know, Tony nominated for A Doll's House on Broadway. And he plays an actor. And I remember just from a, you know, a, a personal anecdote, this is really me, not Danny, who's, you know, oh, who's moved okay, on and doesn't Danny, have problems tell me anymore. All about it. Okay, Frank. Um, <laughs> he's, he, um, <laughs> I remember like taking acting classes in college because I was in high school plays. And then suddenly that moment when you realize if you're, I mean, I wasn't good enough. I'm not even pretending that on the podcast, but I mean, you realize pretty quickly in a real class that, oh, there's no scrim between you and the judgment. If you're acting, you are putting yourself there like Emily Mortimer in that amazing scene. And you are just going to be picked apart. And I remember thinking actively years before therapy that if I just write, there's at least some paper between us, you know, between me and the knives. Uh Um, that vulnerability is just, I mean, you have the, you, it's, it's so, it was really exciting to see because you have different gradations of it within one relatively small ensemble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, um, 
speaking of acting, I have the utmost respect for anybody who can do that. I find it, you know, so humiliating. And I've been humiliated on stage for getting my lines and doing badly and, oh, just couldn't take it. And there's times, you know, and, and the actors that I work with are so willing to make fools of themselves. And I think, you know, that's part of being a director is letting people feel like they can try things and make fools of themselves. And so somehow, I guess, I mean, you know, the character of Mark being an actor plays into the whole thing, um, especially about like, what am I doing with my life? And am I making a difference? And should I quit? Should I retire? What gives me meaning? And I, you know, I love the idea that he's so convinced he's going to give it up. And sure enough, there he is in a play. Like we just, yeah. it's like the Woody Allen joke. Um, I have a, terrible in such small portions. <laughs> that too. No, uh, my brother thinks he's a chicken. Like, oh, yeah. well why don't you tell him he's not i can't because i need the eggs something exactly. like that yes it's <laughs> so brilliantly ridiculous <laughs> and um yeah so i i think that's where he's at and yeah we can't stop ourselves from wanting to get the approval i think and that kind of plays out in all the stories a little bit Speaking of um, of actors, I did want to ask about Julia specifically because I just think that you know one of the one of the hallmarks of of your characters throughout the films is many of them are, are quote unquote comfortable in life, but they are in no way at peace. I mean, they're, they have a roiling inner life like like all of us do, and I just feel like very few actors can pull off that tension the way Julia can. And I, I wonder, um, is there when working with her and directing her more specifically than writing for her, is there a particular uh, ability that she has or emotion that she can play that you consider to be a superpower that you can rely on, that you go to, that you are awed by even when you're on set after two films together? Absolutely. Um, she's always surprising me. You know, I write a line a certain way and she'll say it in a way that I never imagined. And that's, what's terrific about good actors in general, you know, but she's always surprising me and making things funnier um, her ad libs are priceless. She should get paid extra for those, but she doesn't. <laughs> and I don't know her depth, the depth of her emotion, her face constantly surprises me. I mean, I look for actors whose faces I know I'm going to want to look at for a really long time mm -hmm. um, while I'm working with the men in the editing room. Um, and her face just has so many um, personalities. She's really collaborative and um fun really fun and somehow i don't know we i think you know we can finish each other's sentences and we have and i think that's why i want to use her again and again and also you know she's a really good version of me really pretty one <laughs> I loved also that you have the ability when you work with her that you can have a scene. I won't spoil the events of the movie, but there's a mm -hmm. scene where she has to do some very broad physical work near the end of the movie where she mm -hmm. may or may not jump on top of someone. Mm -hmm. And uh, she, I, I, it, it's not a broadly comic part, but she could still do that when necessary. Exactly. Yeah. You got to use it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was written in the script, but the way she did it was just, you know, whatever, <laughs> brilliant. Um, I feel like over the the course of, of your career in movies that the sort of like slice of life, quieter character driven work has 
started to go away from movies and cineplexes. That's not a blanket statement, but I think broadly that's mm-hmm. true. I, I wonder what has, how have you always been able to be from, from Walking and Talking, your first movie, uh, first mm-hmm. full length movie from the nineties that I, that I love so much. Like how has your compass stayed true to that sort of storytelling and avoided what, I mean, it's not necessarily saying that you could just write an action movie if you wanted to, but everything has gotten noisier, you know? And I'm curious about how you stay true to your compass and your voice in the midst of that. Um, I just stay true to my voice. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly what you said. Um, I don't think I'd be good at writing or directing an action movie. Not that anyone's asked me, although I did do some writing on Black Widow and um, that was fun just a little bit. Um, just the action scenes? No. Or the action <laughs> scenes in The Last Duel. No. <laughs> no, those weren't you? Okay. No. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I feel really lucky. And I'm not diminishing my own particular talents, but I do feel really, really lucky that whatever I'm doing eventually gets made. And I guess I'm not sure. I mean, I direct TV shows that I really like, Mm -hmm. but I'm not in it the way I'm in, you know, writing, directing my own script, which is so fulfilling. And so I know how much I love doing that and I'm able to make a living doing it and doing the TV stuff and the writing stuff. I don't see any reason to try to fix something that's not broken. And if it is broken, which frankly, before this movie, I thought it was broken. Um, I couldn't get this made for painfully long time, at least in my world. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, maybe it's time to throw in the towel. And I wasn't happy about it, but it's always there. You know, Um, I'm sure with everybody who does something creative an actor, they don't know if they're getting their next job, whatever, but I don't want to do what I don't enjoy. And if I can't do that, um, I might figure something else out. And maybe that's really spoiled thing to say, because I am able to do what I enjoy, the TV jobs and my own films. So the answer is, I don't really know. I just keep trying to do me. And um, eventually it it happens. And so, um, you know, I, I hope this film gets a bigger audience, of course, than my other films. It's doing real well. I'd love to make money from it and be able to make my next film, which probably will be just as hard because it'll be a small personal story about I don't know what yet. You mentioned the TV work, and um, I I wanted to to talk about that briefly because you've you've had a, a long and varied career directing for TV, Sex and the City, Six Feet Under, Parks and Recreation, One Mississippi. Um, I think you just worked on Lucky Hank for AMC. Um, I was curious if you were ever tempted, though, to and I and I say this. Let me caveat this. I want you to to make movies. Um, I don't have the the resources like an A twenty four or whatever to allow you to, but I hope that you continue to make movies. But I was curious if you were ever tempted to tell some of your stories in the TV format, because there is this narrative, I don't know if it's accurate anymore or not, but that the, when, when smaller bore character stories left cinemas, they went to TV. Mm -hmm. Um, And selfishly, I love that your movies are considered, uh, you write them and direct them and finish them as movies. But I was curious if you were ever tempted to try the longer form storytelling of TV. 
Um, I have a couple of times, really long time ago, Sharon Horgan and I had a project that we couldn't get made. And then I had my own project a few years ago that was in line, very in line with my movies, like a long extended film. And I was paid to write uh, three episodes. Couldn't get that made. Um, And then I was like, fuck this. Can I say that on your podcast? Yes. You can say it again if you want. Fuck this. Fuck yeah. this shit. Um, <laughs> this is, it's a safe space. It's, it's too, it's so much work. I know writers or are, are actors are trying to get paid for auditioning now. Um, you know, we do so much work uh, trying to get jobs between the pitching and the decks and the blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, I was happy that I was paid at least by a studio, you know, to write these. Thank God. But, you know, it was just demoralizing, humiliating, sitting in that room over and over again. And um, I didn't have to do it. I was able to then just keep directing other people's TV shows. And that's fine with me. Like Mike White, I don't I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he writes every script, directs every movie and be the uh, quality person that he is. <laughs> it's um, it's amazing to me. Yeah. But you're you're right and you point out something that is different that the 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 climb for movies is incredibly hard in financing et cetera et cetera but you your movies are you and you made them and you wrote and directed them and then the longer those meetings go or I don't know if you've ever had the indignity of a bake off situation but like you're just you're taking parts of you and you're giving them to people who are like I like that part but not that one can you change that and at the end of this process what what is it Right, right. You mean in television? In television, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Awful. I mean, and every writer goes through it. I mean, all my friends, you know, the notes from the studio and the producers and the free work, and it goes back and forth, and it is demoralizing. And I guess that's why I haven't really pursued that too much. I tried. Oh, and I did with Darren Starr. We had a, I had written a script with him, like an upstairs, downstairs. And it was called Help, and it was about the help in a rich family's house, which, of course, has been now done to death. Um, yeah. But we can get that made. Darren Starr, for God's sakes. Yeah. I mean, That's... no, it doesn't matter, like, who you got in the room. It's crazy. It, it's uh-huh. weird hearing these things because I remember when when Tar came out last year, which, which I just absolutely adored. And then I remember thinking... Oh, I guess Todd Field is such a perfectionist. He worked on this movie for 16 years. Cause I, you know, it, it, but of course, then you hear in the interviews, he's like, well, Kate Blanchett and I and Joan Didion had a script and all these incredible things that could have happened over the course of a oh, decade wow. and a half, but they don't. Yeah. And it's oh. kind of a miracle anything gets made. I know. And I've had, I've, um, stuff that I haven't written that I wanted to direct, like pilots. Yeah. With full fledged movie stars and full fledged TV stars oh. that can't get made. So it's always shocking to me. So this question is hopefully isn't too banal, but I'm curious that like in this world of um, that you're describing professionally, when things can be frustrating and hard to get made and, and yeah. you know, the, the, the larger cultural shift towards just noisier franchisey stuff that doesn't necessarily feel like a black widow aside, like a home. Mm-hmm. Um, what is, what has inspired you in the last year? Where do you find inspiration artistically, not necessarily that informs your movies, but just kind mm-hmm. of like lights the fire or keeps the fire lit. Um, I guess watching really good things, right? Um, which of course I'll go blank now. Really great movies inspire me. Great music inspires me. 
I listen to Amy Mann and I want to write a story immediately. Hmm. If she can do that, I can do this. There's kind of that feeling. I mean, small things like someone suggested I watch this TV show called The End, End of the Fucking World. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And I just started watching it. It's like, I would never turn this on. This is about two young, you know, fucked up kids. And it's so well made that it's inspiring, yeah. right? And it's the episodes like, are like 16 minutes long, right? I love that too. It's just that like, short? They're, they're really, I may be over, that may, you know, I may not be that short, but I remember I think it being probably 22. Yeah, probably something 22. like that. 22. I'm starting the second season. I'm, yeah, they're not, they're not quibbies. They're like two quibbies. Yeah. <laughs> That's why they survive. Yeah. So that inspires me. Um, other than, you know, human behavior in my own life and my crazy family's life and my son's lives and my boyfriend's life. And um, yeah, I wish I could be more specific, but yeah, I'm drawing a blank. If you list a bunch of movies, I can say, yeah, that one. Um, I should have sent you a list beforehand and then we could have just argued. Yeah, I apologize. But a movie that I love and they're out there. That's really inspiring. And old ones too. Yeah. And um so you said that uh, You Hurt My Feelings was finished and took some time to get the funding to get it made. Are you, do you all, are you the sort of person that always has a script percolating, something that you're adding to an open Word document or final draft document? Or do you clear the decks and then just start sponging again on what's out there in <laughs> yeah. the world? Start sponging. I don't have an idea of what I'll write about next. I have a box in my office that says scripts in limbo. And a lot of them were starts and stops and starts and stops. And some of them ended up in this script, but I don't know if I want to go back into that box. I want to first see if I can come up with something fresh, but I haven't yet. And I hope I will, but that's kind of how it works. That's why I make so few films. I don't have an idea that I I like enough to live with and finish. So I don't know. I need ideas, but don't give me any. No, I don't have any. I'm a, and my, I'm a blank. And I don't want anyone else to. <laughs> no, it's dangerous. I mean, it's dangerous to say, oh, I don't know what I'm doing next, because then people will tell me their, their story. Oh, yeah. Everyone's like, oh, I've got a great idea for a movie. Oh, yeah, no. Let's delete the email. Don't. It really don't, isn't ever. Don't even open that. No, no, but what you're saying is also why I think your movies are so special, because you you clearly, you had something that you really wanted to say, and you, you clearly like it, and, and it's a complete thought, and it's a, it's unfortunately kind of a rare experience i think at the moment in the movie theaters but it's one that i love so yeah thank um, you, thank you for taking the time to talk to me about it oh, i hope you'll come back question. for the next one and i'll give you a full list we could do like the highs and lows of the year in culture whatever you like please um, i'll react strongly i'm I want, certain i'll have strong opinions i i want full don not beth okay <laughs> you'll get full don danny okay that's thanks. Thanks. <laughs> thanks so much. It's, is it's it great perverse to that feels you're, right? Yeah. You're really <laughs> lovely. Um, thanks. Thank you so much, Nicole. Okay. Take care. Bye. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, 
File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.